This is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter. This is Tiny at Obsessive Tiny on Twitter. And this is ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, where a movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show, each episode. You can find more of our work at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also like us on Facebook and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash theobsessiveviewer. And you can also check out our annual live event in Irvington, uh, just east of downtown Indianapolis at shocktoberinirvington.com. Uh, this year's Shocktober in Irvington, it's a one night event screening of short horror films from local filmmakers. Uh, this week's, or this, this year's, um, Shocktober in Irvington is this Friday, October 12th. Uh, so I need to get this episode posted as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, tickets are on sale, shocktobernervington.com. It's going to be a great night. Uh, seating's limited. We do have a cash bar, uh, courtesy of Geeking in Indiana. So find tickets and more information at shocktoberinirvington.com. And as always, episode sponsor is Horror Movie Yearbook, which you can find at HM Yearbook on Twitter and at horrormovieyearbook.com. So, Tiny, are you prepared for Shocktober in Irvington? I am prepared. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Are you excited? Very excited, because I, I missed the new venue last year. I haven't you, been there. You did, yeah. and uh, I'm excited for you. It's it's like we're, we've are we got the team back together. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be booze. I mean, it, there is. It's always a good thing. Like, I... like. <laughs> earlier before we started recording when i asked you what like your schedule was for friday mm-hmm. um i will admit i was fishing a little bit because i wanted to see what time you were planning on getting to the venue because okay. i wanted to see if you could give me a ride because i plan on getting hammered <laughs> um nice not really i don't really plan on getting hammered but i'll have my brother take me or something okay yeah or maybe chad will pick me. i don't know because i've got to get there early and yeah we've got everything to set up and everything. It's going to be so awesome. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so yeah, this is, dude, this is our fifth fucking year fifth doing it. Fifth year, half a decade. I don't know why decade. I just the F-bomb there, but yeah. Well, it's alliterative and yeah, um, fifth fucking year. Yeah, it's the fifth freaking year, you <laughs> freaks. Um, yeah, so it's super exciting. Like, I was thinking about that, like, I had a really nice uh, messenger, messenger conversation with uh, J.P. Leck, who is the one filmmaker who will have submitted... Short films to all five Shocktober Irvingtons. Yes. Um, dude is a freaking rock star. It was awesome. Because like today I was listening to all the old Shocktober Irvington episodes, which I'll put links to each one in the show notes of this episode. Um, and it's so cool because like in the first one, he's talking about how, um, how he's like, well, you know, I just got the, I've got the novels and, uh, now I'm just starting to do the short films and everything. And the plan is to do it each year. Um, you know, and we want to do like radio plays and comic books and everything. And like, here it is five years later and dude's done all that. Like he has a yearly like radio show and he did like, it's insane. He's a machine for he, real. He and really is. He's married and has children and a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. And his, by the way, his third book just came out. Yep. Uh, very recently. The Tremendously Endless. Mm-hmm. Haven't had a chance to read it yet, but uh, I would definitely will. Yeah. And you know, if you come to Shocktober and Irvington listeners, uh, you will have a chance to win a copy of not only his third book, but his first book, second book, and a copy of the aforementioned comic book. Nice. So, 
yeah, so come to Shocktober in Irvington. Um, yeah, again, that's October 12th, 2018 at the Playground Productions Studio in Irvington on Bonna Avenue. Uh, go to shocktoberinirvington.com for more details. Um, so yeah, Tiny, uh, today's kind of a big episode, but uh, we'll preface it, but yeah, it's, yeah. uh, do you want to tell the listeners what episode number they're listening to? This is number 250. Right? 250 episodes, five years. Yes. I think it's time to call it a day. Um, <laughs> Funny you should mention, I just emailed you my letter of resignation. <laughs> you know I can only dish out these jokes. Please don't take Regret this away from me. to inform you. That- <laughs> <laughs> Please, this podcast is all I have. <laughs> uh, your cat is sitting in your lap as you say that. She's so precious. She can hear her. you. Oh, it's okay. It's okay, pizza. You can yeah. come live with us. Oh. Play with Gizmo. Oh, my God. I think that they would be, like, best friends. Do you? Yeah. It's funny because, oh, she won't listen to this, but um, the last couple of times that Kirsten's been over here and we've recorded and everything, Pizza has been really... Aggressive towards her. Aggressive towards her. That's crazy. And she's a cat person. And she's a cat person. And, like, she was kind of traumatized by She's like, (laughs) cats like me. That's my thing. Right. And, uh, and, uh... It's funny because like I was like I was thinking about it, um, a few like a month or so ago when Fekus was on. Uh, there's a small like moment in the episode where you can hear Pizza meow <laughs> because she was coming up and like he, like he was like petting her and everything, and the mic picked up the the meow. So like at, yeah, so at the end of every episode now, in addition to hearing my very um a feminine voice <laughs> uh, saying kitty at the end of every episode, like just as a little tag. Uh-huh. You also get a little snippet of a meow in there. Cause I isolated it and put oh, it that's there. cute. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is that Fekus like that, that got picked up when Fekus was over here recording. Now pizza's literally laying in my lap while you who are allergic to her uh, are sitting right, uh, sitting right next to her. And <laughs> but yes. when Kirsten's here, it's like she bolts into the bedroom. Oh my gosh. She hides under the bed. Like, I was going to tell her, like, my dream is that when Kirsten is over here and and we're recording or watching a movie or something, my dream is to have uh, Pizza's relationship with Kirsten be nice enough to where Pizza would feel comfortable, like, laying on the couch mm-hmm. while Kirsten and I are on the couch. Right. And, uh Yeah. Well, I would say poor Kirsten, but I mean, that's kind of a huge boost to my self-esteem. I, I know. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. I'm kidding. I've literally <laughs> never pet your cat. Not by choice, but because oh I can't. Oh, my God. So much is, like, my mind is yeah. just going. I've never pet. Wow. Before. I can't Why for our listeners. Well. Just, do you have an EpiPen? I EpiPen? don't. It wouldn't be that bad. The thing is, like. In the past, when I pet cats, mm-hmm. I forget that I pet them, and then I like rub my eye oh. with that hand, or like scratch something on my face, and like mm-hmm. if it's just on my hand, it's not a big deal. I can go wash my hands, right? But like if I That's get it on my face, sorry, know, don't don't go there. <laughs> but no, like if I get it on my face, it just puffiness, itchiness, mm-hmm. eye waters, and then sneezing galore. Oh, um, okay. That's fair. So that's why she's very cute. I know she's so cute. and she's soft. I assume she's so soft. I it's ridiculous. Love to pet her, but I can't. And she's so precious. Um, <laughs> I tweeted this, but and this we'll get into the actual episode. Um, but I tweeted this the other night that uh, pizza likes to attack my hand sometimes. Like if I if I hide mm-hmm. it under the covers and then I like peek it out, she'll like think it's a 
a pr- like her prey or something right. and she'll attack it. So like every time, every time she did that the other night, I, uh, kept yelling, like I would, like I would, like pull my hand away before she could get it and then I'd be like, I'm gonna punch your little butt. <laughs> I'm gonna punch your little butt. Oh my god. And, uh, yeah, so I'm pretty sure my neighbors think I'm even more weird. Or gay. No, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the obsessive meower. It is, oh my god. No, we're not I, doing I just, it. Uh, pizza. No, you and okay. Kirsten can do it. It's okay. Oh, I've already pitched the kitty cast. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> the kitty cast. <laughs> do you smell gizmo? <laughs> you smell gizzy bear? <laughs> gizzy bear. That's adorable. Yeah, um. So anyway, so yeah, this episode is our two hundred and fiftieth episode. Two fifty. And uh, so to commemorate the two hundred and fiftieth episode of the obsessive viewer. We are, uh, we are basically, we each picked a movie that is on the IMDb top 250 as voted by IMDb users. Um, we each picked a movie from that list for the other to watch. So I selected for Tiny 1954's Rear Window from Alfred Hitchcock, mm-hmm. uh, which is number 43 on the IMDb Top 250. Okay. And Tiny, you selected for me David Lynch's 1980 movie The Elephant Man, which mm-hmm. is number 147 as of this recording, the uh, recording today, October 9th, 2018. Subject to change. Subject to change. So... We're each going to review those movies here in just a moment, but as we are wont to do, um, there's some news to kind of go over. News. News. So news broke today that James Gunn, uh, the director and writer from the Guardians of Ga- the Galaxy movies, uh, who was... Uh, I won't editorialize, who was removed from the Guardians franchise uh, by Disney uh, some time ago when old, uh, provocative, and... Um, uh, shocking? Shocking, provocative, um, tasteless. That's the word I was looking for. Okay. Jokes, joke tweets surfaced. Um, it was a... I don't know if it was officially announced today, but uh, basically the headlines read that James Gunn was in talks to write and maybe direct Suicide Squad 2. Right. Um, so this is an interesting turn of events in that um, clearly the kind of elephant in the room, uh, the kind of rear window in the room is that... <laughs> He's going from Marvel to DC. Um, and I, I kind of see that as kind of maybe not intentional or not. It kind of seems like a, kind of a middle finger to Disney. It's got to be intentional. Yeah. Um, which is kind of hilarious to me because I'm, I'm on the side of things where, like, I don't agree with anything that he tweeted or anything. But given the circumstances, I don't think he should have lost his job over it since it was before it was another lifetime essentially for him. Right. That those tweets were made. So I don't know. We've talked to, we've talked a lot about the, that kind of thing. Have we, have we gotten your read on it? I don't think so. Okay. But, um, but yeah, I think it was an overreaction. Mm-hmm. Um, especially who is Disney <laughs> to be making <laughs> comments or to, you know, be making judgments about, you know, 
cultural sensitivity and inappropriate things, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, Disney doesn't have the best track record either. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it was an overreaction, but uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of any studio or uh, company firing a person, an employee for having an opinion that doesn't have any, anything to do with their job. Yeah. Um, like even, uh, this is a weird poll, but the, um, the duck dynasty people, Oh yeah. Their show got canceled and like, I disagreed completely with their opinion. I forgot. I don't even remember the controversy. I don't even remember either, but there was some kind of political opinion they had that was uberly conservative and Mm. religious and it, it, people didn't like it and they did, they canceled the show and I was Mm. like, I mean, yeah, I don't agree with it either, but like, I think a lot of their base kind of agrees with it and like, I don't think it would really negatively affect the show. It might, I don't know. I was just like, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of the censorship, uh, right. censoring someone, you know, just so they can keep their job. I don't, I don't like that. So, um, yeah, that's, I, I, I mean, I am in support of James Gunn. I wish he was still, uh, you know, on the Disney, uh, on the Disney kick mm. or whatever on their, on their paycheck sale pay- payroll. Yeah. Um, and s- still set to do the third guardians movie and all mm. that shit. And, well, that's the thing. We haven't talked about this part of the story on the podcast, but uh, about a week or two ago, there was an article where uh, Sean Gunn, who is James Gunn's brother, who mm-hmm. plays uh, one of the Ravagers in the Guardians movies, and he does the mocap for Rocket Raccoon on set. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that from his understanding, uh, he believes that the plan is still for Disney to use... James Gunn's Guardians 3 script. Oh, okay. But bringing on a different director. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I, it's not like confirmed or anything. It's kind of a secondhand source, I guess. Hmm. But, and I posted a long thing on, on the Facebook page about this. Um, I just think that that's shitty. <laughs> like, I think that that's because ter- granted, yes, the tweets were highly offensive. Um, and just really just, gross and provocative and, and just not like they were, they were despicable tweets about, you know, molestation, rape, and just very tasteless jokes. Um, but they were, they were written long before he had any connection to Disney. They were dug up specifically by conservative trolls who wanted to stir up shit for him and his, his livelihood. And they succeeded in that. Um, yeah. So to do that and then like, Disney like doubled down on that and said like, well, uh, well, it's final. We're not hiring him back or anything. They get, they had a meeting with him and like the head of the studio that kind of seemed like from what I could gather and from what people are in, in inferring from it was that it was just kind of a, uh, a courtesy meeting that they were never going to like consider rehiring him or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, like the, like Disney's announcement was that they severed all, they severed their professional relationship with James Gunn. And like, okay, you want to do that? That you're, like you said, Tiny, <laughs> Disney doesn't have the greatest track record, record for being, you know, sensitive to issues or anything, mm-hmm. um, in its history. But like, they're saying specifically that James Gunn, like the tweets that James Gunn tweeted before he was under contract with Disney at all, um, are not in keeping with the core values, values of the company. Yet, if Sean Gunn's statements are to be 
believed. So, like, the tweets are abhorrent enough to, like, remove him from, like, from everything Disney-related forever, sever their relationship, but it, they're not bad enough to where they can still use his script. Like, that's... that's Right, that's... That's having their cake and eating, eating it, too. Yes, like, yes. That's just... It's... Yeah. Yeah. I mean... It's not every day that you lose a lot of respect for one of the biggest corporations in the world, really. Right. <laughs> um, it's like they're washing their hands without using any soap. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's, Your analogy was better. Yeah, well, I was <laughs> going to make a really uh, childish and insensitive and horrible joke. Uh, that would have clearly been a joke, but someday I want to adapt the Dark Tower, so I can't. <laughs> um, nice. Uh, but yeah, so I just love how Warner Brothers is like, we don't care if you made rape jokes. Come, <laughs> right. come make our crappy sequel. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you saw the original Suicide Suicide Squad. Right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about James Gunn taking the reins of Suicide Squad two? So I love it from the perspective of it being a metal finger to Disney. Mm-hmm. I just love that he's like kind of trolling them. Essentially. Yeah. Like that's awesome. That's great. But like, I don't know. He's he's. I think he's talented enough to make a solid flick. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it's, I don't necessarily want him to waste his time with it, right? If, if you will, I, I don't know, because I, I don't really care about that, quote unquote, franchise, right? Suicide Squad franchise, it's just not that interesting, and I don't know. Uh, yeah, and it seems like Warner Brothers and DC is a sinking ship anyway. Yeah, so exactly. The optimist in me is like, well. Maybe James Gunn can steer the ship and like make something that could rejuvenate the brand. Cause I mean, Wonder Woman was good, but what else do they have? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think, like you said, DCEU is a burning ship or whatever. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't think the DCEU can be saved. No, no. Have you seen yeah. the trailer for Aquaman? Uh, I think so. I don't it, know. That's the thing. <laughs> I've seen it like twice in the theater and I keep thinking like, oh wow, I forgot to, that, you know, I forgot that the t- trailer was released and then I was like, oh, I should tweet about it. And then I see a movie and it's <laughs> yeah, just like, right. nothing. It's like uh, yeah. It slips my mind. But I will say, Jason, there's a scene, uh, early in the trailer where he's, he, uh, I don't know if the right word is to say crashes into a submarine, but he like, basically he comes through the hatch of a submerged submarine and he, he falls into the hull, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he's standing there like shirtless as Jason Momoa is want to do. Right. And like the shot is from his back and he just kind of turns his head. He kind of, he kind of turns his head over. So he's kind of like looking over his shoulder yeah. at the camera and he's like, permission to come aboard oh with a little smirk <laughs> oh, oh. And, oh jesus and every time i see it i'm like i kind of want to see aquaman <laughs> <laughs> that's funny um i'm gonna have to watch the trailer now yeah it's so like i don't know at this point it, i take the dc movies as they come right right um i finally watched justice league like three four months ago what'd you think um it, it was meh. Yeah. uh the casting is so great mm-hmm. every time i see jason momoa or even ben affleck as yeah. batman i think it's a great casting oh yeah everybody uh mm. is great uh, i, I, I loved ezra miller in it yeah ezra miller I he was great. great great awesome 
the script is just so mediocre. Yeah. And the story was, bleh, like, who gives a crap? Yeah. It, I don't know. It the was, CGI was horrible. The CGI was so bad. It, it looked like a cutscene from a video game from yes. the last generation. <laughs> yes. Um, Very much so. Um, yeah. It yeah, was just so many mistakes. Yeah. And, I, I agree. And then they have the whole Joker standalone movie that's not going to be related to anything right. going. Have you seen any of that stuff? I have, yeah. Phoenix? Yeah, with Joaquin Phoenix and T- Todd Phillips's. Yeah, Todd directing. Phillips. I, I'm, a, I'm more optimistic about that because I, mm. I don't feel like they're kind of overplaying their hand, if you will, right. or trying to shoehorn everything into one freaking movie. Yeah. Um, just overbloating everything. Um, it doesn't feel like they have too many balls in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if the Joker ever juggled, but that <laughs> pun not intended. Well, fine, Prince of Crime. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyways, I, I'm much more optimistic about the Joker, the, the Todd Phillips Joker movie mm-hmm. than anything else. But, uh, but yeah, but like you said, I'm going to see it because Jason Momoa is f- awesome. Like yeah. he's, oh yeah. Like uh, you mentioned he was shirtless as he's wont to do. Right. Why would you ever wear a shirt? I know, right? If you go on, I mean, if I looked like that dude, I, it could be three degrees outside <laughs> right? walking out with a shirt on. Yeah. So, like, I'm a, I'm a super straight guy, but like, when, super straight guy, that sounds so, <laughs> that sounds so. Are you overcompensating, uh, man? Overcompensating. <laughs> um, I am a straight male. Yeah. Um, but like, when he's like, permission to come aboard, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> sure. Come on sure. in. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it, th- I think there's still something to how a superhero looks. Like, you can mm-hmm. nail the look. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think basically everyone in in the DCEU so far is kind of nailing the look. Yeah. And that oh yeah. That gives me a little bit of encouragement and sight, excitement to want to see the movie. Jared Leto notwithstanding. Jared Leto. Yeah, <laughs> that that's true. They, but they Joaquin fumbled that one. Joaquin yeah. Phoenix looks good. Um And if I like I think that in theory this Todd Phillips Joker movie like it kind of seems like DC and Warner Brothers they're like yeah, this whole shared universe thing, we don't know what the fuck we're doing. Mm-hmm. This is, this is not going well. Let's just do these standalone things and right. know, play with that. And like, I'm on board with that. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. That's how you're supposed to start. You're supposed yeah. to build off those things. Oh, yeah. And you know, the way Marvel did. Right. Um, Ugh. yeah. But yeah, um, the Aquaman trailer looks, and there's another part where, um, he and I think it's Amber Heard, yeah, are in a plane flying over the desert and she just jumps out of the plane. She's like, Oh, we've got to go or something. And then like the pilot's like, did she have a pair? She didn't have a parachute. And then Jason Momoa just looks at him. And I think that there's like a goat or something in a cage. No, no idea why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he looks at the pilot and he's like, redheads, gotta love them. And then jumps out of the plane. <laughs> oh my <laughs> like, God. Like that kind of thing. I'm like, okay, you have my attention. James yeah. Wan. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. So, I don't know, maybe it'll be good, but that comes out in December. Yeah. Um, anything else on news? I don't think so. Oh, uh, Pet Cemetery. Oh, yes. Trailer drops on the 11th? The trailer drops tomorrow on the 10th. 10th tomorrow? Yep. But today was the 10th. Nope, today's the 9th. I can never remember anymore. Yeah. Um, anyways, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, exciting. The poster looks so cool. The photo, the set photos yes. that they released. I all good things. I can't wait. Yeah. Uh, Jason Clark as Lewis Creed. Uh-huh. John Lithgow as uh, as uh, as Judge, Judge Crandall. Crandall. Yeah. Terrific casting. That cat as Church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm um, I'm liking everything I'm seeing so far. Me too. 
Me too. So I, I can't wait to see the trailer tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, so that's news. And uh, yeah, as we said, this is our 250th episode of The Obsessive Viewer, and uh, we each picked a top 250 movie for each of us to watch. So, Tiny, for you, I chose Hitchcock's Rear Window, mm-hmm. um, which we should say, like, you hadn't seen, I had seen. Uh-huh. And with Elephant Man, I hadn't seen and you had seen. Right. So, um, as I mentioned before... Uh, Rear Window is number 43 on the top 250 and directed by Alfred Hitchcock and from 1954. So, Tiny, uh, what did you think of Rear Window? And if you wouldn't mind reading the plot summary courtesy of IMDb. Sure. The plot summary says, A wheelchair-bound photographer spies on his neighbors from his apartment window and becomes convinced when one of them has committed murder. And becomes convinced one of them has committed murder. Um... I, I, of course, I really like the movie. I figured mm-hmm. I would. I mean, I, anything by Hitchcock I've seen is great. You mm-hmm. know, he's a legend and I love Jimmy Stewart and all that. So I, I didn't have any preconceived notions that I wasn't going to really like this movie. Um, I, having said that, I think it kind of drags quite a bit. Like, yeah, for a movie from 1954, the fact that it's just over two or like just under two hours, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, hour 52 minutes, that's, that's a, for the time was a long run time. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't want to say something stupid, but like, <laughs> I, I don't know if Alfred Hitchcock knew how to balance that or like maybe he sure. just dr- drug it out too much a little bit, but I, th- I think it dragged a little bit in the second act, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there was that, but I mean, I, I also feel like even though the script dragged and the story dragged a little bit, I feel like it's one of those movies where you can't, you can't take your eyes off the two leads yeah. of Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly. Um, they're just, t- first of all, their chemistry is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, you know, that's, that's something that you can't teach or, you know, you can't, you just pray that you have chemistry that good on, on a film. And, uh, I think it, it pours off screen in this movie. Yep. Especially confined to that one set. Yes. It's just, it, it really, uh, drives the, the movie right for me at least right um so those two performances just keep you keep you glued glued to the screen mm-hmm. um and then and then all the other performances of all the the huge cast of neighbors mm-hmm. and everyone involved in this film like th- there's a remarkable amount of acting without speaking yep which is a challenge in and of itself but it's also acting without speaking uh, from a distance. Yeah. Like if you think about the physical distance between the camera and the a, a person giving their performance, that's just logistically challenging. But also as an actor, you, you know, just you have no, you have no cue, no physical cue mm-hmm. to tell you, you know, where you're supposed to be directing your emotion, like what physical direction you're supposed to be conveying your emotion to, and how you're how you're if if your body language is being picked up through the window, you know, yeah. like it just, it seems like so logistically challenging. Um, and just, it's really, it's an incredible feat that, you know, the, mm-hmm. the credit for that goes to Alfred Hitchcock. But I, what really blew me away was the actors mm-hmm. being able to have such, uh, for lack of a better word, deep characters who never say a word. Yep. You never hear them say a word. It's really incredible. Um, and then you mentioned the set. Yes. I, I was like the opening scene. I was like, 
like I, this is terrible podcasting, but my <laughs> mouth just kept opening more and more as they revealed more of the set. I was like, holy shit. It's like four stories tall. Yep. And it's literally a, a city block of New York. I was like, dang, where did they, like, I bet the set constructor was like, really, Al? Really? <laughs> we got three weeks to put this thing together. Like, I bet he was pissed. Yeah. Cause it's just amazing. And like all the detail, there's, cars going by mm-hmm. in this tiny little slit in between buildings where you can see the street but there's constantly foot traffic there's cars going by there's people in the the restaurant that you can't even really see mm-hmm. but like all those little details are there it's incredible it's a remarkable set mm-hmm. so incredible um I, oh sorry uh, no go ahead i had watched this recently within the last few months and kind of a peek behind the curtain i tried to kind of watch it kind of intermittently during work as background noise mm-hmm. um which i mean like sometimes i'll download movies from amazon or netflix and kind of have them playing in the background usually it's movies that i i'm familiar with like you know any number of movies that i've seen multiple times that way i can kind of just listen to it while i work right um and i thought you know i might try this with rear window because i've been wanting to <laughs> see it because i think i saw it once when i was like a kid and then, like, in the first five minutes, I was like, no, this is a movie I need to watch. Yeah, you gotta watch this <laughs> You one. need to devote your full attention to this movie. Right. Um, which I don't really, and, and as an aside, I don't really watch movies at work anymore. Cause yeah. It's just, like, I'll download, like, a stand-up comedy special and then listen to it, but right. that's the extent of my, um, movie watching at work. Gotcha. For the most part. Um, so anyway, yeah, continue. Well, and then from, from a, uh, you know, what also leapt out at me, uh, jumped out at me was from a, you know, just all, all the logistical challenges of this film. Um, like I said, filming actors from dozens, if not a hundred yards away, mm-hmm. which is really challenging. And also I think it was really important that for, for just tonal effect, that you literally never leave that apartment. Mm-hmm. Like you're there for every single frame. Yep. Um, and that just, I, I didn't understand how until the movie ended, I didn't understand how integral that was for like audience immersion. And the, you know, you, you really, you really, uh, force the audience to participate in this voyeurism and in the, yep. in the plot, because, you're stuck there just like, just like Jeff is, uh, you know, you're, you're stuck in that, in, in that, uh, apartment and you, you feel it. I think you really, I think that's part of maybe why I felt the drag, mm-hmm. uh, in the second act. I think, I think it, it is a bit of a flaw of the film, but I also think it's maybe Alfred Hitchcock. It was intentional. He wanted you to right. get a little bit bored because, you know, uh, Jeffries was bored, mm-hmm. was bored the whole, the whole movie. And that's hence the, the, the onus for the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really clever aspect of the film. And I think it was highly effective and I don't think it was an accident. I think, uh, did he, did Alfred Hitchcock write this as well? Uh, no. See, I don't, I, um, I really should have looked up on the facts, read up yeah. on the facts, but I don't know. I don't really know. Written by John Michael Hayes based on a short story by Cornell Woolrich. Mm-hmm. So he didn't write it, but yeah. I, 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 I would assume it was like an intentional thing that like, we cannot leave this apartment. The camera will never right. leave the apartment. Um, just, just a really great choice, mm-hmm. uh, that worked well in the movie. Um, and then the, uh, 
you know, Alfred Hitchcock is called the master of suspense for a reason. Um, like I said, I think, I think the first, you know, the first act is set up and it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. The second act kind of develops, develops characters a little more, drags a little bit. And that third act, you're just like, man, you're just like glued to your seat and the, the suspense, um, without spoiling it, there's a moment of realization in the film. Mm-hmm. And from the, it's it's the the climate kind of in the climax area. From that moment forward, it's like super super tense. Yeah, like it's it's like suspense that I think you know my knowledge of the films from the forties, fifties, and sixties isn't perfect. It's not extensive, but I can't imagine there were many other directors who could achieve that kind of tension with mid-century technology with mm-hmm. you know trends of the time and stuff like that i just i haven't seen a lot of movies from this time period where someone was capturing tension and suspense that way mm-hmm. like i think alfred hitchcock is completely unique so far ahead of his time for that that technique of storytelling and filmmaking that it's amazing how well it holds up today yeah um for example like there's a I don't think it's a big spoiler, but there's a part, you know, uh, the main character is literally looking out his window, this entire movie and, uh, not the entire movie, but like, that's, you know, it's, he's, he's looking out his window. That's so much of the film and no one is aware of what he's doing the whole time. But then that drops on a Mm -hmm. dime, completely different. And someone, he's looking through a telephoto lens and someone looks him directly through that lens from like, like my wife, like screamed a little bit. Really? When that happened, like it, it freaked awesome. her out. And I think that actor, uh, Raymond Burr, mm-hmm. um, he, I don't know if they made him really tired and his eyes were bloodshot or what it was, but the way he looked into that lens, mm-hmm. like freaked her out and it kind of freaked me out too. Nice. Um, and th- there's a lot of stuff with his eyes, I think in the climax of the film. And from that point forward, my, my wife was like freaking out. She's like, Oh, Oh, Oh Jesus. She kept like, you know, like audibly, like that's so being scared. Awesome. And like, it was, that's how effective it was. Nice. Um, and I was kind of along the, for the ride with her. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not a pansy, but, um, <laughs> but I was like, Oh my God, he's just like walking through the door. Like, this is just, I can't believe where this is going. Mm-hmm. And throughout the movie, I was thinking, you know, the main character has this theory that this guy committed a murder. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking the whole, the whole time that the story was going to go, uh, this guy did not commit a murder, but one of his other neighbors did, mm-hmm. and he didn't pick up on the cues. That's what I thought. That's how I thought the movie was going to end. Right. Oh, that been it. That's not what happens. Right. Um, and so I was like really surprised. Like, oh, wow, I really didn't think this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was genuinely surprised by it. But, uh, um, and there is a, there's a moment or a scene that I assume is famous. I had never seen it before, but where, Jimmy Stewart is hanging off of a window ledge and he falls off that window ledge. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that that might be maybe a little bit confused with vertigo. Okay. That might, yeah, you might be right. Yeah. That might be what I'm thinking of. But, but yeah, anyways, anyway. it's again, it holds up relatively well. Like mm-hmm. if, if you take, you know, you take into consideration how advanced our technology is, we can literally do anything we want in a movie. Right. Well, at the time, you know, given all the constrictions of technology and what was reasonably possible to show a show, a person falling off the edge of a building mm-hmm. was just about impossible. 
And I think what they, they managed to do it in this film, I think it, it looked pretty well, it looked pretty good. And I think it held up pretty well. And it was I agree. genuinely suspenseful and, and shocking. Um, and just, just well done. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a good movie. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I knew I was going to like it. And like, I thought I might, I'm not sure if I ended up loving it as much as I thought I would. Okay. But I, like, I, I'm tr- I'm sitting here racking my brain trying to think of like okay what can I say about this movie that I didn't like right. what can I say about this movie that was a mistake or should have been done better mm-hmm. and there's almost nothing right like I said the little bit of dra- I think it could have been maybe a little bit of editing in there make it you know an hour and forty minutes instead of an hour and fifty mm-hmm. um, but who's to say if that would make it an actual actually improve the pacing of it I I really right. don't know but uh, now do you think that the mystery <laughs> that surrounds the movie and surrounds the plot. Do you think that if you go back and watch it again, will you, will you have, do you feel like you'll have kind of a bit of like diminishing returns watching it, knowing like what all happens in it? Um, or was the mystery of that first viewing, the mystery of what's going on, was that not enough? Did that not drive it as much as like the visual styles and the, the filmmaking techniques did for you? Um, I, I think the, the, the style and the technique is always going to stand out for mm-hmm. me uh, upon rewatching it. And I do want to see it again. Yeah. Um, I, th- but I, I feel like the, the ending and like the, the, the approach to the climax, the climax itself, and then the, uh, denouement mm-hmm. are w- probably one of the best I've ever seen. Frankly. Nice. I, I, th- I think it's, I think it's that good. So I feel like that's going to be, the primary focus of my memory of this mm. film. And so if I watch it again, it's going to be kind of, kind of appreciating what I'm watching, but really just waiting for that, for that. Okay. Shoot a drop, if you will. Sure. For that. And that's probably, you know, the movie's an hour and 50 minutes. That's probably hour and a half, hour 30 mark. Yeah. So it's going to be like kind of not, not to say that 90 minutes is going to be a chore, right? But it's going to be all anticipation for that mm. last 20 minutes. So, um, and again, I don't think that's a fault of the film. I can't criticize that, right. but cause that's my own personal reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I'm also going to remember the opening scene where we see this unbelievable set. Yeah. Like I'm going to remember that too. And it's, oh, yeah. that's going to stand out for me as a movie fan forever, probably. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's in the top 250. It's in a lot of top 100 lists mm-hmm. for a reason. Yeah, it's a damn good movie, an incredible achievement. Oh, absolutely! In suspense and uh, and just just filmmaking techniques, uh, really incredible movie. Totally agree. Like the just the uh, how awestruck I was when I saw mm-hmm. like just the set and just just like we talked about the the view from the window is like insane. Like you were talking about how like the distance. How how strong the performances from the silent neighbors mm-hmm. can be when they're shooting it from a distance. Like you're exactly right. Like it makes it so much more impressive because that distance, you're not picking up as much of the nuances of the body language or anything as you would in like a tight shot or a or a shot like in the same freaking room. Right. Um. Just really impressive filmmaking. Um. Absolutely. Now, how many, how many Hitchcock movies have you watched? Like, what's your relationship with Hitchcock? 
Um, it's not not as extensive as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've I've seen Vertigo, I've seen Psycho, I've seen North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of the staples. This was a huge blind spot. I don't know why I had never watched this. Yeah. Um, I think there was. I don't know if it was an official remake. Uh, in like early two thousands, like is a uh, Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf. Uh, yeah, Disturbia. It wasn't like a direct remake. I don't think, but okay. I think it was a uh, basically. Basically the same movie, yeah, or same premise at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw that and I was like, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I don't know if that like subconsciously turned me off from seeking this movie out. Interesting. But I knew I knew it shouldn't, but mm-hmm. maybe it did. So that's why it was a blind spot for me. But um, so so I think the, those those four Hitchcock movies are kind of the big staples. The Birds as well. Mm-hmm. Um, did you say you've seen that or haven't I, seen? I've seen parts of it. I haven't okay. seen it all the way through. I would recommend that should be your next one that you should watch. Okay. Um, cause it's just, it's again, talk about just impressive filmmaking in mm-hmm. a different way. Okay. Um, I've also just, seen, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say like, just, I mean the birds. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. Just okay. the stuff that they can do. Also the lead actress is. Tippy Hedren. Tippy Hedren. And like my mom like was in the Marines with like her cousin or something or her i don't know she was like in the like she knew her like she met her when my mom was in the marine so that's cool yeah um i've also seen i think you've seen it too because i think Mm -hmm. we watched in school okay uh rope oh yes we watched that in like sophomore english and i was i remember that was like we we've talked several times on the podcast about our early development as a film, as a movie fan, mm-hmm. or like when we hit our teens and we really start to define or refine what it is we're fans of. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we watched that movie, our teacher, he was, he was a good teacher, uh, Mr. Dorman. He, oh, he, D squared, D2, <laughs> Derek Dorman, uh, D2. So he, he kind of, I think either before we watched it or after, I think it was before, he told us how the movie is three takes. Three thirty-minute oh, takes, yeah. and like the the premise of the story is there's a dead body in a in a trunk during a party. Yep, and I don't even remember the plot that well. I I just recently rewatched it. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Do you mind if I go for it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, to preface this, I watched it at work. Okay. Uh, so I didn't pay close attention, but basically, yeah. uh cat hair in my mouth um so basically the plot is that these two intellectual men uh they plan the quote-unquote perfect murder uh, because the main guy is this nut job who thinks that he can pull off the perfect murder um because he i think it's because he just doesn't value human life okay because he views himself as better than everyone else and his his co-murderer person is kind of like a lackey. So the plot is that they murder this man and they like moments before hosting a dinner party with all of his close friends and his parents. Right. And so they hide the body in the trunk and the entire movie is them having the dinner party interacting with people, the people not noticing not realizing that there's a dead body of their friend or child, not child, but you know, adult child, Uh um, in the trunk. And then Jimmy Stewart plays a, uh, one of their colleagues who kind of gets wise to them. And he, God, his performance, like he is so, I guess even get like suspicious throughout it. And then the, like his 
his performance builds toward this just outburst of just pent up aggression toward mm-hmm. like it's so god he was amazing no, he um, was a great so actor. good uh but yeah anyway anyway so yeah Dorman had us watch it yeah but i i remember i think i'm pretty sure he told us before the movie started that it's filmed in three takes mm-hmm. and i was like cuz i think hitchcock was a big a, a big proponent or a practicer of having uh acts like mm-hmm. three distinct acts in a movie yeah and that's kind of where the cuts are for the takes of the movie and mm-hmm. i remember sitting there just like my eyes glued to this movie the whole time like holy shit they're not there's no cuts in this damn movie there's right. two cuts in the whole freaking movie i was <laughs> like that is insane and like i think after that is when i started really becoming deeply appreciative of of long takes in films mm-hmm. and and noticing things like editing yeah um and just it it was i think it was a semi integral in my development as an obsessive viewer nice rope nice. rope and it's funny cuz i don't remember a lot about the movie i just remember right. those those really distinct technical aspects mm-hmm. of it and that's just about it but uh i mean i think i think that just speaks volumes to that a kid in 2000 three 2004 mm-hmm. was so blown away by a 50 year old movie right and it was in school yeah and it I, I still remember it now and it was you know i'm a fan of this art form and that moment that movie in school was so <laughs> integral to that and you know hitchcock that that speaks volumes for how integral education can be and mm-hmm. the development of a, a fan of art or um you know it, it's it's why it's a part of that is why I'm such an obsessive viewer. Nice. You know, nice. And it's, 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 I, I think it's cool that I came to that realization in an educational setting. That's so awesome. So yeah, that's um, why the arts need to stay in school. Yeah. Oh yeah. It. <clears throat> um, anyways, yeah. So rear window was fantastic. Yeah. I, it, it deserves to be in top 100 lists. Mm-hmm. I think, like I said, that ending and the, like the uh, approach, to the climax is, probably one of the best i've ever seen just just fantastic and to circle back to what you were saying about disturbia and everything i know that people are probably screaming at their at their phones now <laughs> it was remade as a tv movie in 1998 with christopher reeve interesting yeah wow which i think that is available on amazon prime um i really want to see it because obviously christopher reeve was paralyzed right um and I just, I remember like that airing and it being a big deal because it's like, oh, Christopher Reeve playing the Jimmy Stewart role. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, I really liked it. I'm glad you picked it for me. I, nice. And like it forced me to watch it. And like, I, there's stuff for the podcast that like, I'm like, oh, I need to watch this for the podcast and like, I'll sneak off to the basement to watch it or whatever. But right. for this, I was like, I texted my wife and I was like, do you want to watch Rear Window with me? I was like, this is supposed <laughs> to be one of the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. It's Jimmy Stewart. I was like, I, th- I think you might like it. And she was like, yeah, let's watch it. And she nice. loved it. She ended up liking it a lot. Very so, nice. Um, it was a good experience for that, for that reason too. So I might just, I might just force that on her a lot now. She's like, Hey, will you watch this with me? So I can actually watch it for the podcast. And, and, uh, I it, like that. I'll start, I'll start assigning you more stuff. Okay. <laughs> it's gotta be good though. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or like, you don't, you don't know my wife's tastes so it's right, gonna be right. difficult <laughs> oh man did you watch it on my voodoo account you know i tried really i don't know if it's because our internet is so shitty oh. that, but it kept like we got to like the six minute mark and it's by the way i don't know if i don't think i mentioned this um 
the movie is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like the color, was this, was it filmed for color? I don't even know uh, that. I think so, yeah. Okay, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was like remastered for no. color or something. Uh, the color in the movie is just incredible. Jimmy Stewart. Very vibrant. Jimmy Stewart has these steely blue eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the guy who played Doyle, the detective, his eyes are even bluer. Mm-hmm. And they just like jumped off the screen. Um, all the incredible outfits that Grace Kelly wore. Yeah. Um, just, just beautiful color in the movie. Um, totally got sidetracked but uh so yeah i was i was admiring the gorgeousness of the film we got like six six and a half minutes in and it said um the player isn't working right now or something and you had to click okay and exit out i was like all right it's just buffering or it's Mm. just being crappy and we would try to play it and it would play for like 10 seconds and then drop out again Jeez, so and how'd it, you end up watching it? We uh, rented it on iTunes. Oh, so it, okay. which and we didn't have any trouble on iTunes. So <sighs> I've never had any trouble with Voodoo before, though. See, that's weird because, and that sucks because I was gonna say because with Voodoo, I do the I've mentioned it before, like the disc to digital thing. I'm kind right. of digitizing my collection. I have a big ass box set of Hitchcock movies. Yeah, so I've done that to several movies. Okay. Which I mean, you could just borrow the DVDs. I'm pointing to. Right. <laughs> yeah, that would have been convenient. But, um. Uh, yeah, I didn't even think of that. But if you want, you can borrow any of them. Any of them. Okay, it's okay, good. right on. Uh, but yeah, uh, anything else on Rear Window? No, see it if you haven't. It's fantastic. It's a staple of film. Of film. Yep. It's a staple of film, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, do you want to tell the audience what you gave to me? Yes, I picked for you uh, The Elephant Man from 1980, mm-hmm. and... I've seen this movie twice, I think. Okay. I was on a huge John Lynch kick when I was a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is one of his first movies. And uh, I remember really, really loving this movie. Um, just the emotion of it and just the incredible story that's behind mm-hmm. it. So uh, that's why I picked it for you. Nice. So, uh, yeah. So The Elephant Man, uh, 1980. David Lynch movie. David Lynch. I said John Lynch. Oh, did you? Oh, okay. you must have gotten confused with John Hurt. Yeah. Um, yeah, so plot description IMDb is a Victorian surgeon rescues a heavily disfigured man who is mistreated while scraping a living as a sideshow freak. Behind his monstrous facade, there is revealed a person of intelligence and sensitivity. Um, so yeah, so uh, where to begin with, with, the Elephant Man. I first of all, it's a number one forty-seven as of today on the IMDb Top Two Fifty. Um, I'll preface this by saying a couple of things. One is that I'm not a huge David Lynch fan, mm-hmm. um, and it's maybe that's a little disingenuous to say it like that, even because looking over his IMDb credits and stuff, really the only movie of his I've seen is Mulholland Drive mm-hmm. uh, back in two thousand one, uh, and that was back when. I was in my, I yeah. love Fight Club and Memento, so every movie has to have some kind of twisty, mind-fucky plot in order to make, in order for me to think it's good phase. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason why I watched Mulholland Drive was twofold. One is because, uh, I was 15 and I heard that there was, uh, a twist ending to it. Mm-hmm. And two is I was 15 and I heard that there was a lesbian scene. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so I don't really remember Mulholland Drive that well. Um, I just remember it being kind of confusing yeah. um, and very surreal, I guess, even mm-hmm. though I, I I think that maybe it might be one of 
well, aside from the Elephant Man, I feel like it could potentially be one of the more um, accessible David Lynch movies. Uh huh. Um, but I've always kind of been intimidated by David Lynch in general. Um, just cause I, I, I mostly, uh, it's mostly because like his reputation to me is kind of built around being this surreal filmmaker with, that's heavy on kind of weird and, and intense imagery. Um, and I've kind of steered away from that because I'm kind of nervous about having that imagery in my brain. <laughs> um, and the elephant man is no exception because as terrible as it sounds, I kind of thought I just was going to be kind of grossed out by the makeup effects. Yeah. Like, and it's in the movie doesn't shy away from it at all. Like it's right. John Merrick in the movie is horribly, horribly disfigured. And yeah. it's, I mean, it's, it's tough to watch. It's kind of disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll also further preface this by saying that, I was not in the right headspace to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, just because as, as we're recording, we are a few days away from Shocktober and Irvington. Um, that same night, Shocktober, that, that same day is the first day of Heartland Film Festival. So basically I have, I'm preoccupied with, uh, Heartland and Shocktober and Irvington preparations and, also, in order for me to have the day off on Friday, I am working 10-hour shifts at work. Oh, boy. Monday through Thursday. So, needless to say, I was not in the right headspace. I was distracted. So, my opinion on this movie is going to be colored by those uh, things. Right. Um, um, I'll start by saying that, yes, the makeup effects were grotesque and were it was tough to watch. Um, but the human element of John Merrick's character and the human side of John Hurt's performance of that character really, uh, I wouldn't even say that they really resonated with me, but it came through pretty clear. Like I said, I was pretty distracted, but I could appreciate the human story of the elephant man and how it really went to great lengths to show the compassion of, of humans, of human beings around John Merrick, um, like Anne Bancroft and, uh, Anthony Hopkins' characters, mm-hmm. um, while also showing the darker side of people that just see him as a freak, like his, the, like the head of the circus that he was a sideshow in, and then the nefarious men that, um, still see him as a sideshow. And still, like, they want, like, their, he is their entertainment to, to them. Right. Um, and I feel like though, that dichotomy of being, of having those different types of people in the movie against the backdrop of Victorian London, like this very elegant era, um, and how, um, the idea of, presenting him to like society is a big like stumbling point for him as a character. It was like, it was engaging. It was interesting. And at times I did find some emotional resonance with it. And I thought that it was, it was heartfelt and touching, but it just, it, other than that, it didn't really do much for me. Um, okay. Yeah. There is a very interesting stylistic choice into making it black and white, uh, which I think really, really helped the move like 
if this was just shot conventionally, like in color, I think it wouldn't have been nearly as interesting to me as, as it was in black and white. Yes. Um, just because it just kind of has this antiquity to it that also has this, um, it brings you into the, in, in a weird way, it tricks you into being in the mindset of the era. Um, that it's depicting. And I thought that I, like, I appreciated that stylistic choice. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple other things about it. I, like I said, I'm not a big David, David Lynch fan. I'm not really, I don't have loyalties to David Lynch's body of work. So watching it, I was kind of like, it wasn't even like I was looking for David Lynch isms or anything. Mm-hmm. But I did notice, like, one thing that stuck out to me was that, like, there's, in particular, there's one scene where, kind of the quote-unquote bad guys of the movie will, like, they come to John Merrick's, like, room, and they basically ridicule him. Like, a huge group of people ridicule him and make fun of him and, and basically treat him as a sideshow in, in, a, in a circus while they're in his own room and everything, and they're laughing, and it's very, very surreal, like David Lynch likes to likes to do. But the tone of that particular scene, like, every other... Every like heartfelt scene between him and between like him and Anthony Hopkins or Anne Bancroft or whomever in the movie, like the more heartfelt like serious scenes that show him as like an intellectual thinking human being, as opposed to this freak show um, in a circus. Like all of that has this this uh, this weight to it of being serious in tone, and then you have like one of the more emotionally devastating scenes where he's being ridiculed and made fun of and everything and you have like instead of carrying that same weight in like a in a different way in a dramatic fashion it's more kind of a silly like like the music is very uh melodic i guess okay and it's kind of like it's treated as like uh it's like we are being put into the um entertained as like entertained way of thinking of the characters that are ridiculing him and it's i feel like that's a that's a mistake because it it's his movie and uh <laughs> i feel like it would have been it would have been more you know um affecting if like we were viewing that or experiencing that portion of the movie through the perspective of John Merrick instead of from the perspective of the people of the people that are treating him like something other than a human being. Okay. Um, which now like saying that out loud and phrasing it like that, I can see that that's maybe the point, I guess that we're mm. in the perspective of the people that are treating him like garbage, but it didn't, it didn't have an effect on me the way that it would have, if it was more kind of emotionally devastatingly focused on John Merrick. Okay. Um, but yeah, in, in the movie kind of, kind of meanders a little bit granted again i was distracted uh like my head was not in the right space but i kind of felt like toward the end it was just kind of it dragged on a little bit um but i will say the ending like the last 20 to 30 minutes um where the character gets um both um he gets a he gets recognition for who he is as a person as well as fighting for that recognition in a separate scenario mm-hmm. um there's like a a famous line where he he lashes out and says that he's a human being um like it's very heartfelt like the last like 
few sequences in the movie, him, um, him confronting the people that are ridiculing him, him being recognized, and then him, like the last scene involving him in the movie. I won't spoil it or anything. Those are all very heartfelt, very touching moments that maybe if I was more mentally invested in the movie, which again is my own fault. Like that's not a, that's not a reflection of the movie. It's just, it's just, I was not in the right headspace. But I think that if I was more emotionally and mentally, uh, um, invested in the movie, I think that it would have carried a lot more weight. Those last few sequences. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I thought it was really good, but really good, really good bordering on, really okay okay um yeah tiny you've seen it a couple of times but it's been a while it's been a while i really yeah. wish i could have rewatched it for this episode um i yeah i i i really loved it the first time mm-hmm. i saw it and i upon a second viewing i think i maintained that opinion okay but it's i mean i think it's been like six seven years since i've seen wow. this movie um but a lot of it sticks with me for good reason it's it's a very memorable film mm-hmm. um and so I, there's so many things about the movie that I am blown away by. I like the fact that they didn't sugarcoat like anything in this movie because mm-hmm. it's a hard story to tell because it's so, for lack of a better word, horrific. Yeah. Um, and 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 you, I don't think you're off base at all to say that it's hard to watch because yeah. he's such a horribly disfigured person. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, it's one of those things where you you actually want to look away, mm-hmm. and. And what what amazed me about the movie is that by the end of the movie, I didn't feel that way anymore. Yeah. Because, like you said, they humanize him so much, mm. and he becomes a person that you see past all of that, for lack of a better word, gore. Yeah. Uh, that that he's plagued with. Um, and and I think another thing about the movie that just blew me away. I didn't really. I think I knew it was a true story, and that uh, mm. this the elephant man was a real man. But I didn't. I didn't understand the depths of it and and how how disturbing the story was. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the movie really solidified that for me. And just just the fact that this was a, this was a real man. This was a real story yeah. that happened. Like it. It's so. It's so extraordinary that you you had someone had to make a movie about it. This right. had to be out there because it's um, the the condition that uh john merrick had that wasn't his real name uh, right. jo- joseph something joseph, or other yeah. but uh he it's so rare that i i don't i don't know the actual numbers but mm-hmm. the condition that he had is so rare there's only been a couple of other people since him that have been discovered to have this mm-hmm. um and it's it's so rare they don't really know what it was yeah um but he they think he had like three three horribly rare conditions that combined together to make him so disfigured, I think. Um, that's the theory anyways. They don't actually mm-hmm. really know, but like just, it's, it's such a, I'm just blown away by the, by how extraordinary it is. Mm-hmm. Like this, this story is so rare or so extraordinary that it almost shouldn't exist. Right. Right. Cause he, he's like you said, he's so horribly disfigured that mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's beyond imagination. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the tragedy as a result of that is also shocking. Like, I think the fact when Dr. Treves finds and finds him and sees John for the first time, mm-hmm. 
it just absolutely wrecks you as a person yeah. because of how oh, horribly yeah. he's treated. And then it's, it's amazing because his life gets so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you think back to the context of this incredible person was literally trapped yeah. inside of his disfigurement and his, mm-hmm. you know, he was defined in every single way, a hundred percent by his disfigurement. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just such a tragedy because there was this really incredible person underneath. Yeah. In like um, the, uh, the like head of the circus or mm-hmm. the person that, for lack of a better word, owned him right. in, the, in the sideshow as when he was a sideshow performer, like treated him like an animal, like right. treated him so poorly. And there's a scene where Anthony Hopkins like mentions like he's not a dog or something, something to that effect. Um, or says like if you, if you take him back, you're just going to treat him like a dog or something. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's it's really uh really hammers home the kind of the terrible lot in life that he has. Right. And it really exemplifies how, how much better his life becomes as a result of, you know, right. Being pulled out from that and, uh, introduced to, um, you know, regular society and, and compassionate, empathetic, empathetic people. Right. And I, I also think that was, that was why it was important to film it in black and white Mm -hmm. because it's, sort of a simplistic analogy, but his life transitions from the deepest, darkest blackness you can almost imagine mm-hmm. to he's so happy in the end. Right. And like, I mean, just, just by simply being given an identity and being mm-hmm. allowed to be a person, he's so happy. Like the, the contrast is literally black and white. Right. Um, like I said, it's, it's simplistic and almost a juvenile, right. juvenile analogy, but it's, it's effective, I think. And I, I, honestly, I was looking through the, uh, history and like the trivia and stuff. I, I want, I might be wrong about this, but I want to mm-hmm. say that the ultimate decision to film it in black and white was actually a technical one because really, if they, I think when they tried to do the actual shading of like mm-hmm. color for his makeup, they couldn't get it to work. Like it, Interesting. it looked too fake when they tried to make his skin tone actually like, you know, full color. So they were like, well, we have to film it in black and white because we can't get this tone to work. That's what I thought. I, I don't know if I that's true I could see that being not. the case. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyways, I, I think, uh, Dr. Treves, uh, mm. the real Dr. Treves has, um, wrote a book about this and I, oh, yeah. I've always wanted to read it or just learn more about the real elephant man. Hmm. Um, just because, like I said, it's it's one of the most unique stories you'll ever read, uh, or yeah. the, one of the most unique stories you'll ever hear, because um, it's 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 like it's it's so rare that this this what happened to this man is so rare that it shouldn't it almost shouldn't have happened. It's so it's so rare it shouldn't exist. Right. Like one of those kinds of things. So that that's what blew me away about the movie. I'm looking on IMDb. I gave this a ten out of ten. However, oh many, yeah, however many years ago when I saw it. So nice. I, I really have to watch it again. Yeah. Um, uh, on Letterboxd, I think I gave it three and a half stars out of five. Okay. Nice. Um, I'll probably have to revisit it down the road. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting piece of trivia though that I just read on IMDb. Uh, following the death of the real Joseph John Merrick. Parts of his body were preserved for medical science to study. Some internal organs were kept in jars, and plastic casts were taken of his head, an arm, and a foot. Although the organs were destroyed by German air raids during World War II, 
The cast survived and are kept at the London, at the London hospital. The makeup for Sir John Hurt, who played Merrick in this film, was designed directly from those casts. Right. That's cool. So that's interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, there's also the, uh, the, the model that he builds throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. I think that's a real thing and it's actually on display somewhere. Oh, nice. Um, and it was like an incredibly detailed, difficult thing to do that like, mm-hmm. It's hard for people who don't have disabilities to put it together and right. he managed to do it. So hmm. yeah, I, I'm just, I'm just incredibly fascinated by the real life story and yeah, I, I, I love the way it was, um, captured on film. I think I'd have to see it again to, to, to mention any criticisms I have of it, but I think, uh, um, Roger Ebert, uh, mm-hmm. famously, he was like, yeah, it's, it's a really good movie, but I think he famously criticized it for, being a little bit too sentimental or like too um, emotional or something like that. Like, yeah, I can't remember exactly what he said, but cause it was, it was a, I could see that critically lauded film. Like mm-hmm. everyone loved it and it was nominated for like eight Oscars or something like that. Right. Um, and it just, you know, everyone loved it and it was all praise, praise, praise. And he was like, he was like, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal film. One of the best films of the year, but I think he ended up like, I think he took a little bit of flack for his, minor criticism of something about it. I can't. And if it is about the sentiment sentiment, I can understand because it's kind of, you know, it's almost like without spoiling it, like it's a very kind of happy ending mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it is a little bit like, Oh, he's the I hate to say it, or it's mean to say it, but he's like the ugliest man that's ever lived, but he ended up having such a wonderful life in the end or whatever. You know, it's, it is mm-hmm. a bit, airy or i don't i don't really know what the adjective is it's kind of overly sentimental i guess yeah yeah Uh, and i hadn't maybe i misread the ending oh really Uh, we'll have to talk off mic because i don't want to yeah i don't want to spoil it either but i will say that i did look up um uh uh i did look up Ebert's review of the elephant man. He gave it two out of four stars. Oh, wow. And a part of his review says, um, (laughs) I kept asking myself what the film was really trying to say about the human condition as reflected by John Merrick. And I kept drawing blanks. The film's philosophy is this shallow. Wow. The elephant man sure looked hideous. And gosh, isn't it wonderful how he kept on in spite of everything? (laughs) Um, yeah, so I knew it was quasi famous for something like that. Like it's it's a little simplistic or something like that. Yeah, it is kind of straightforward like that. that right. Me. I really need to read Ebert's reviews. He was a uh, he was a one of a kind. Yeah, Ebert or John Merrick. Ebert. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. both. I mean, but yeah, Roger Ebert. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. I've, I've wanted to get in the habit of looking up his reviews from like older movies, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and reading them after I watch them. But totally. anyway. Well, I'm glad you so, watched yeah. The Elephant Man. It, may, it makes me want to watch it again, having discussed it. Um, I know Paige will not watch this movie. Right. So I have to sneak it in somewhere. I own it on DVD. Nice. Um, uh, but all my DVDs are packed up at the moment. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad you finally watched it. Yeah, I'm glad that you recommended it to me. Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I don't. I have no regrets for from watching it. It's just I was not in the right headspace, but I did appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciated parts of it. I'll, I'll say that. Okay. Um, yeah, the timing for this episode was a little terrible, inoper- inopportune <laughs> at the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and it sucks because it has to be episode two hundred. Right. Exactly. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, inopportune. But I'm glad that we did it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So 
uh, potpourri? Yes, potpourri. Okay, cool. And also, uh, you know, let us know what your favorite IMDb top two fifty movie is. I guess I don't know. Um, <laughs> also, follow us on Letterbox. I'm at Obsessive Viewer. Tiny's at Obsessive Tiny. Mike is at I am Mike White. Uh, yeah, Letterbox is awesome. So, potpourri. Um, I have two things. You have one thing. Yes. Okay. So I am going to. Uh, I'm, I can't think of a pun. Um, uh, I have two things. My first thing that I'm going to say is I'll go ahead and talk about Venom. <laughs> um, Venom is uh, how to how to. Uh, by the way, Potpourri is a section of the podcast <laughs> where we kind of wind down and talk about things we've watched lately, things we're looking forward to, anything we want to look as long as it smells good. It's potpourri. So my first potpourri for this episode is Venom. <laughs> um, the PG-13 Sony, uh, movie in association with Marvel. Um, that is the, uh, um, yeah. It is, it follows a, uh, trend that doesn't exist or a kickstart. It's gonna kickstart what I think is gonna be a trend of having uh, the very wise decision of making a superhero movie without the superhero. Yeah. And only having the villain. So I guess Suicide Squad kind of did that too. Right. Um, so I will say this. Tiny, what did you think of the trailers for Venom? Uh, meh. I was the same way. Yeah. Um, just it, none of the trailers did anything for me. I thought that Tom Hardy's performance in the trailers was really off and weird like the accent that he was doing was weird yeah i wasn't into it um so naturally since i have a list i went ahead and saw venom (laughs) um (laughs) opening weekend um my god this movie was fun yeah i had so much fun watching venom and not like uh oh it's so bad it's good like it's not good it's not a great movie Mm -hmm. it's borderline bad just as as a film but it's so much fun to watch in such a weird way. Like hmm. Tom Hardy in the trailer, I couldn't I, I couldn't get on board with what he was doing. But in the actual movie, I was so on board with every choice that he was making. Um it he was he was having fun with the role. He was playing Eddie Brock as this kind of uh, this kind of timid uh, timid wise ass kind of character. <laughs> okay. Or timid and, and reserved, but I, I don't know how to describe it, but he, and he does this affectation on his voice. That's so goofy and weird, but for some reason, I, I don't know why, but it works. It works for me. <laughs> like, okay. It's really entertaining. Um, the visual effects are fine. Um, there's a chase sequence that's, shown in the trailer where he's on a motorcycle and he's being chased by people. Mm-hmm. Nothing to write home about. A lot of tight shots, so it's it's I feel like that's to cut corners on special effects maybe. Right. Um and it's kind of incoherent. You can't really tell what's going on. But again, like Tom Hardy is really good nice. in such a campy weird way. And the most fun part of the movie is that uh when the symbiote attaches itself to Eddie Brock, Venom has a voice and he's in Eddie's head and they have conversations and it's so weird 
and so funny and so, <laughs> like there's one scene that I was like kind of howling with laughter and it's just this stupid juvenile like joke line <laughs> that has no business being in the movie but it's just so it reminds me of it reminds me of the scene in Iron Man 3 when uh, uh, when Tony Stark is talking to the kid and the kid is saying like, yeah, my dad left and, and, uh, Tony Stark's like, yeah, big deal. Uh, dad's leave. No need to be a pussy about it. Yeah. It's that same type of joke and it works so well. Um, and the fact that it's being played between a character and an alien character is just <laughs> wacky. Yeah. Um, the kind of villain of the movie is Riz Ahmed's character. He does fine. He's, he's okay. Um, Mm -hmm. he does have this kind of interesting, um, interesting pleasantness to his evilness. Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's a sociopath. He doesn't care about other people, but he has like scenes where he's, um, kind of in PR mode (laughs) and like he's talking (laughs) to kids and he's, he's, you know, talking about trial tests for these, for these, for the symbiotes and everything that you almost want to believe him. That he has like best intentions for humanity and everything in mind, right? Um, but it's, I mean, it's fine. And like the climactic like fight sequence kind of harkens back to uh, like the fight sequence between Incredible Hulk and Abomination in the Incredible Hulk, but with uh, Ed Norton. Okay. Um, it's just that kind of just two big ass like. Uh, creature characters just duking it out. It's it's kind of a lot of fun. Okay. Um, Michelle Williams is also in this. Oh man, I forgot she was in this. Yeah, I don't know what. Like she is fine. She's she's okay because I'm. Uh, we here at the Obsessive Viewer love Michelle Williams. Yes. Um, but <laughs> she's not really given much to work with. But what she's given is kind of fun and kind of mm-hmm. kind of good. Um, okay. The scenes between Eddie Brock and Venom that are in relation to Michelle Williams's character are one of the highlights of the movie because it turns into something kind of completely different for like a brief moment here and there. Okay. And it's just, it comes out of left field and it's so, so weird. And I think it's part of that is I'm sure that like hardcore comic book fans will hate the movie because it's so against what I assume Venom as a character is. Um, cause he's, you know, an evil, like he's a villain character. He's like, mm-hmm. he's a crazy villain character, but like he's, like his relationship with Eddie Brock in this movie is kind of a, no pun intended, a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're, they kind of help each other out in unique ways. And it's just, it's weirdly humanizing for the symbiote character of Venom. Right. Um, but yeah, it's again, I, I had a blast with this movie. It was so much fun. I'm, I'm probably not going to buy it. I'll see it again if it hits Netflix or something, mm-hmm. but I was pleasantly surprised. Um, nice. Yeah. So that's Venom. Go see it. I, you know, it made a ton of money. Oh, that, that's the other, like, kind of anecdote I was going to say about that. Um, in the movie, once the symbiote gets into Eddie Brock, he has the Venom voice in his head and they have conversations back and forth. Um, about midway through the movie, like, I had a weird symbiote, uh, like, experience. Okay. Like, Cause I was sitting there and then like, I heard a voice in my head say, 
man, I would watch I would watch more Venom movies with with uh, Tom Hardy in it. Like I hope that there's more movies and he replies, <laughs> uh, reply, uh, wow reprises his role. And then like I was like, wait, who the fuck said what the fuck? Oh, that was me. Okay, <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, um, yeah, and also final thought on that in the trailer, um, me and Kirsten at least I think ridiculed the like last line of the trailer where he where venom like tells this guy that he's gonna he's gonna eat his head and his arms and his legs and he's gonna float down the street like a turd in the wind what <laughs> yeah have you not seen that trailer i don't think i have yeah that's a line in the movie oh my god venom tells a person that he's gonna be a turd in the wind that's after, not good yeah uh trail it's so stupid it's uh, beyond stupid <laughs> by the time it reaches that moment in the movie i was kind of like okay that's fine it's okay <laughs> it's fine wow um yeah so so yeah that's venom it was fun uh okay. when i saw it at amc they had like an exclusive amc like venom comic uh, okay. that they gave to, i threw it away i didn't read it but uh, okay uh but yeah so anyway that's venom nice. um yeah. Do you have any interest in seeing it? Do you think you'll ever see it? Yeah, I'll definitely see it. Yeah, at some point because uh, I was a fan of. Uh, I actually had like a handful of Venom comics when I was nice. a kid, um, and they were uh, not. First of all, not intended for children, <laughs> um, which I think why a lot of people are pissed that it was PG thirteen. Yeah, should have been rated R because it was a very graphic character in the, in right. the comics. Um, it's like I, I remember as a kid, like watch or reading through some of those comics, and I was like, whoa. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I kind of have a bit of, and, and I enjoy those comics a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have a bit of nostalgia for the character. So I'm nice. definitely going to see it. I don't know if it'll be in theaters, but yeah, uh, there are better things in theaters to see. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I definitely want to see it. Yeah. Uh, for my potpourri, <laughs> I have another thing that's very fun, um, <laughs> but pretty objectively pretty dumb. Okay. So I stumbled upon this, this show that's on the History Channel. It's been on the History Channel since 2015, which I was surprised oh, at. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so it's in its fourth or fifth season. Uh, the show is called Forged in Fire. Mm-hmm. The premise of the show is they invite four blacksmiths okay. or variations on that, on blacksmithing, on the blacksmithing trade. Um, and they are challenged with using a certain kind of metal or steel to fashion a knife or a blade of some kind. And they, it has to meet certain parameters and then they test their knife or blade and, uh, we wield it down to two people, two competitors and they're kind of the two victors, and then they have another challenge where they get to go back to their like their own blacksmith shop mm-hmm. back home, and they have five days five days to build a different weapon, and then they test that weapon. Um, so, I I actually I do a lot of YouTubing, and I actually follow like a handful of like actual knife makers, people who make knives and okay. other weapons the swords and stuff like that not creepy <laughs> no, not at all i just think it's a fascinating craft Trade. yeah very fascinating craft and it's absolute it's based 100 percent on skill it's mm-hmm. not like it's not like 
learning how to flip burgers at McDonald's. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not it's, like an assembly line. It's right. It's art. It's, it's art. Um, and I, I just find it very interesting and it's, it's not funny or like a joke when I watch the YouTube videos, mm-hmm. but when they turn it into this competition, it's so like over the top. Really? Because the, the host is ridiculous. He's like this super chiseled jawline kind of guy, white dude. And he speaks with this very powerful voice. He's like, he's like blacksmiths. You have one hour left and like says it like really. And he's constantly has his hands like this while he's talking. Okay. It's weird. I I wish I could show you guys. Like kind of in a weird upside down diamond in front of his stomach. Yeah. And he's, he'll talk with his hands and then he'll always return to that pose. It's weird. Okay. Like Paige noticed it when we were watching, and I was like, "What the <laughs> f?" Like I didn't even, I didn't pick up on it first, but once I noticed it, I couldn't stop. I couldn't you stop couldn't looking at it. See it. Yeah. yeah, and he's he's just way too intense. Uh, and so it's it's funny because when they finally get to like test their knives, mm-hmm. um, they have to like this, they have to go through like pretty much like a gauntlet of like testing. Like you have to you have to cut this thing, and now you have to get through this thing, and then get through this thing, and it's okay. like. It is 100% the fantasy of a 10-year-old boy. You get to take a giant sharp knife and destroy things. And these guys get way too fucking excited and they ruin it. Like they, they incur all these penalties because they're so excited that they get to smash through a bunch of watermelons with, with a knife that they miss half of them because they're so excited. And like, and then what adds to it is when I think of a blacksmith, I think of a like, strapping burly guy with a beard yeah very very manly mm-hmm. very you know it's a hard thing to do it's challenging it's predominantly male macho kind of thing it is amazing 99 percent of the people they get to come on this show are like total like scrawny hipster dudes really older very overweight not athletic at all wow. burly older guys <laughs> I could kind of see the hipsters. Yeah. I mean, like, oh, yeah. Oh, I want to learn. I want to learn blacksmithing. Right. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, you know. I knew it before it was cool right. or whatever. But it's just like, maybe, I've, I've watched like three or four episodes of it. Mm-hmm. And there's been like maybe two dudes who were like what I would envision a blacksmith to be. Okay. Everyone else is just like, I was like, it's like a dude with, with glasses and like a fucking Batman hat and a ponytail. <laughs> and he's like blacksmithing. I'm like, what the, f- really? That's the blacksmith guy? Like, it just doesn't. And so then they, they, they get to go through these childhood fantasies. And it's like this guy who looks like he plays D and D for a living and he's chopping through a, I don't know. He's chopping through a group of onions. And he's so excited that, like, this guy actually did this. He, like, chopped through him, and he was like, ah. Like, he, like, audibly was like, ah, like, grunted like an animal. Wow. And Paige and I just lost it. That's awesome. Oh, my God. It was so funny. Like, anytime any of us, either of us, like, do something physical, mm-hmm. like, the other day I picked up a basket of laundry and, like, set it down, and I was like, ah. Like, we've been, <laughs> we've been doing that for, like, two weeks now, because we just crack each other up with it. It's That's it's, awesome. It's kind of fascinating because, like I said, it's truly a craft and it's right. a difficult thing to do. And like, I appreciate the art of it, but they just overblow this whole thing. And it's, it's a fucking cartoon. Yeah. It's so silly. You, it, it's pure entertainment though. Like, yeah. I do not like, I don't like reality TV. Right. Um, I don't really watch 
basically any of it, but every once in a while I'll stumble upon something like this that it's just wildly entertaining. Nice. And I'm not even saying that it's like good television, but it's just it, it we've we've watched several episodes and we're probably like we we've set recordings up we're gonna keep watching it um and it it has a bunch of variations there's one that's like a, i think it's special this season it's hosted by bill goldberg of, okay of professional uh, wrestling oh that guy like okay. goldberg okay yeah I, you said bill goldberg and for some reason i thought you i my mind went to uh gary cole because i thought you said bill lumberg oh, oh my god that's weird no no um so it's him and this like ex Navy SEAL dude, and they're way too intense. But it's basically all of the champions who have won the episodes of okay. Forge and Fire come in and basically have, they're they're having like a tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's arguably more over the top than the Jeez. show. It is. Ugh. I'm telling you, yeah, I'm telling <laughs> you, it is just pure entertainment. It's okay. it's really funny. And it's called Forged and Fire. Forged and, it's and on Fire History History Channel. Um, okay. The, the competition one with with Goldberg is called Knife or Death. Okay, it's, I can I I can respect that. Oh man, it's <laughs> it is, and like I'm not trying to shit all over. Like saying no. it's I'm not saying it's so bad it's good. I'm not right. saying that, but it's very entertaining. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to spend half hour, hour right. or so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, should I wrap this up with my second purple? Please do. Okay, so. This will be brief because honestly, it maybe it'll be brief. Maybe I'll go on a tangent. We'll see. Uh, Tiny, let me preface this. Do you watch This Is Us? No, okay. I've seen some of it though. Paige watched a little bit of it. Okay, yeah. I don't watch it either. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave it two episodes. Granted, and I will say this: that's not enough to give a really good indicate. Like that's not a good. It's not. I don't have a good. Uh, gauge for what the quality of the show actually is. Mm. But based on those first two episodes, I made some, uh, I made some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, I, I made some, uh, assumptions about the show that led me just not to want to watch anymore. So, okay. To kind of, um, give you a quick rundown. Uh, this is us, uh, and this is us is not my potpourri. Uh, I'm kind of leading up toward that. So this is us as a TV show. Those assumptions that I had based on those two episodes is that it is a kind of manipulative to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is more concerned with, uh, getting, manipulating its audience into emotional, um, <laughs> into getting emotional responses out of the audience rather than earning it through, uh, quality char- storytelling. Yeah, quality good, storytelling, yeah. good characterization. Um, and a couple examples of that is that the first episode of the entire series of This Is Us, um, there are two dueling narratives going on at the same time. Uh, Mandy Moore and Vila, whatever, are about to have a baby. Um, and then, a brother and sister are dealing with their own stuff. Um, one of my big gripes about the show is that a, it's revealed later that like it's two timelines and it's a big twist, I guess. So spoiler, Mm -hmm. um, but it's a few years old at this point, but, um, so that's kind of the hook of the show. Um, my problem is in, in those first two episodes, like it just seemed like the characters were just completely one note, like not, 
developed well. Like there's, um, I don't know the actress's name, but she plays the sister. Like she's, she's an overweight woman in the show. In those first two episodes, every single, every single thing about her character is do like is goes back to her struggling with weight loss. Like that is mm-hmm. the only definable thing about her character in two episodes of a television show. Um, on the other hand, her brother is like an actor who just got fired off of a job. And again, in those first two episodes, that is the only piece of characterization about that character. Um, uh, Sterling K. Brown is looking for his, uh, looking for his father, his estranged father or whatever, or birth father, biological father, a biological father. There you go. Um, that's the only, that's the only character trait that his character has in those first two episodes. Not to say that they don't get developed later or anything, because I'm sure that they do, but when you're trying to hook an audience and you're just contingent, or you're just writing toward getting to the end of the episode where there's a twist, because again, there is a big twist at the end of the second episode, um, it just seems cheap and manipulative and uh, just not good storytelling. So I say all of that um, because the creator of This Is Us, Dan Fogelman, wrote and directed a movie called Life Itself. Right. Yes. So this movie stars Olivia Wilde, um, Oscar Isaac, uh, um, Olivia Cook, and some other people I'm blanking on. Or Oh, uh, was Antonio Banderas in it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it is a story about uh, interconnect, interconnected, like, st- it's like, it's like different intersecting storylines that are happening that span generations. Okay. So it starts out with Oscar Isaac and Olivia, Olivia Wilde. They're married. They're, she's pregnant. They're about to have a kid. There's a tragedy or, or something happens that causes Oscar Isaac to go on a downward spiral. So all of that like is in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And it's interesting and engaging enough to where like, Oh, if they make the whole movie, about these characters, that would be cool. Nope. Done. Go to the next set of characters. Olivia Cook is, is, uh, <sighs> I don't know, a college age girl that's kind of rebellious. She's in a punk band. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Okay. Oh, she's connected to, this is how she fits into the story. And then boom, go to the next one. It's like, mm-hmm. and all of it leads to, like, all of the characters they aren't well developed at all like they're poorly written characters and every single one seems like it's being written toward tragedy or or reactions to tragedies and it's it's the exact thing that i had a problem with with this is us it's like the characters aren't the focal point of the show or of the movie because the screenplay is trying to emotionally manipulate us into getting an emotional reaction out of us ra- by just purely storytelling um by hitting poignant storytelling moments without earning them mm-hmm. um so instead of developing the characters so that when oh this one character has something tragic happen to him oh we feel for we feel for him because we know this character and everything instead of that we have oh this character that we don't really know just had something terrible happen to him um, but let's go to this other character <laughs> that has nothing to do with him, or maybe they do. Spoiler alert, they do, because the movie does f- 
fuck all to conceal like what it's <laughs> leading toward. Like you can see the ending coming a mile away, and it's supposed to be this profound like, oh, these are like people are connected. This is uh, the whole, and it's so stupid. Um, the title, Life Itself, which is the title of of the Roger Ebert documentary and memoir, um, uh, has no connection. Like that's it's just a coincidence that's the title of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that it's that this movie is titled Life Itself is because Olivia Wilde's character is writing her thesis on narrative or literature or something, and her thesis is that uh, life itself is the is the universe's unreliable narrator. And they don't really expound on that because why would you when you are just pointing characters toward tragic events to to get to your hackneyed uh, fucking meat cute at the end of the movie? That's deep. Yeah, it's and it's <laughs> like, and the movie addresses that because it's like, oh yeah, she failed, <laughs> like she was she did terrible. I okay. think I don't know. Maybe that was just wishful thinking on my part, but um, but yeah, it it wasn't a good movie. It was terrible. I've seen people. Um, compare it on like letterbox and on imdb and all over the place i've seen people compare it to collateral beauty okay uh which was that will smith movie from a couple years ago that i vehemently hated right and felt like like uh, as a refresher that movie spoiler alert for collateral beauty uh the movie's about will smith losing his daughter and then his business partners hiring actors to pretend that they're like the physical embodiment of like uh concepts so that they could manipulate him into selling his company or something right. completely manipulated like just shitty like horrible horrible movie mm-hmm. and incredibly manipulative and despicable um so i have much stronger feelings toward collateral beauty than i do for life itself okay but the thing that i said in my letterbox review is that i don't see Life itself isn't as egregiously terrible as Collateral Beauty, um, but I would say that the screenplay or like the script for um, <laughs> the script for Life itself is as manipulative as the characters of Collateral Beauty. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it's it's a terrible movie. Don't see it. And I mean, This Is Us is like a huge successful show. I don't get it. Yeah. More power to you if you like it, but life itself is just going to be more of the same. So maybe you might like it, but there was nothing for me in this movie. So okay, yep. I've seen a few episodes and tidbits of uh, this, is this Is Us, and I'm not prepared to call it a bad show. Okay, but I don't think it's particularly good. Mm-hmm. I think people think it's better than it is. Yeah. It's it's just like it feels like it's going for whoa drama yeah this is so dramatic look at how dramatic this is this is the most dramatic thing ever and right it it feels way overdone to me mm-hmm. but i don't i don't think it's shitty or like yeah. like i can understand why people like it i'll put it that right. way i can understand why casual fans might like it. right you know you know what's interesting and this will be the final thing and we can we can shut it down for okay. the night um because another thing that i watched uh, is the good place? Uh, season two finally hit Netflix. Okay, incredible! Like I've, I don't know if I've ever seen a comedy quite like this show before. Okay, wow! Incredible, incredible show. Um, very funny. Very uh, the concept because the concept is Kristen Bell is dead mm-hmm. and she is sent to the good place, which is basically 
heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's due to a mix-up, and she's supposed to be in the bad place. So, <laughs> uh, so the whole the show is basically her trying to conceal the fact that she's actually supposed to be in hell. Okay. Um, but they're like it's it goes a lot deeper and, and funnier than that. But the funny thing is that This Is Us uses a dual narrative kind of structure, uh, employs flashbacks and apparently flash forwards, mm-hmm. um, and everything. And then also The Good Place deals with some hot, hefty concepts of like good versus evil, like what makes you inherently good, like philosophical kind of things. It's just like these two, and obviously you know where I'm probably going to go with this, but it's funny because like these two shows kind of harken back to the style of Lost like, yeah. back in the day. So anyway, that's just my way to shamelessly uh, mention Lost on the <laughs> nice. podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, that'll about do it, I think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Tiny, what do you think our listeners should do on Friday? They should go to this thing called Shocktober in Irvington. They should. Bring uh, cash to buy yes, booze. Yes, we are going to have a cash bar courtesy of Tony at Geeking in Indiana. And uh, yeah, once again, one night event screening, short horror films, local filmmakers. We have a bunch of great raffles or like prizes to raffle off. Um, several Funko Pops that were graciously donated to us by our friend Matt and Draco. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, yeah, we have some great films lined up. We've got J.P. Leck from uh, Elsewhere World. He's got a great short film that um, uh, it, it has a certain uh, performance in it that uh, if you're listening to this, you might recognize. Um, <laughs> but it's awesome because like the, the credits say like in introducing Matt Hurt. As nice. Adam Palm. Awesome. Um, but anyway, that uh, we've got a couple of short films from Fair Creek Films from last year. They they were uh, uh, in the in the in Shocktober and Irvington uh, with us, and we also have the return of Snapshot Productions. Uh, their short from their short film "Don't Open the Door," um, directed by Jared Bridgman. Uh, that's going to be a blast to have them back and uh, to screen their short film. And then also we have uh, Cameron Grimm and Five after five productions in their short film the man who loved flowers you can hear me interview the cast and crew of that short film over on tower junkies um last year i was able to go to the set and visit them and everything and and kind of watch them film the short film based on a stephen king short story uh so yeah so we've got a lot of cool stuff planned it's going to be a blast uh, we have limited seating, so buy your tickets now, shocktoberinervington.com. Um, yeah, it'll be a fun night. So that's October 12th, 2018 at Playground Production Studios, 8 p.m. Doors open at 7.30. Once again, shocktoberinervington.com. Tiny, any parting thoughts? Nope. All right, great. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Obsessive Viewer, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more of our episodes at ovpodcast.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. If you'd like to support the show, the best and easiest way is to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. More ratings and reviews means it'll be easier for people to find the show in the highly competitive film and TV podcast genre. It also provides us with valuable feedback on the show. 
If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a one-time PayPal donation at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate or become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer for recurring donations with different reward tiers. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, notebooks, phone cases, and more, visit our Tee Public store. You can also buy other great Tee Public designs in our store, and we'll get a small commission on the sale. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. The Obsessive Viewer's theme song is An Eclipse of Events and is provided by Loudlight from their EP, Mistakes We Must Make. You can find that and more great music from them on iTunes. And like their Facebook page at facebook.com slash loudlikemusic. Any and all feedback on the podcast is encouraged. We love to hear from you guys. You can contact us by emailing podcast at obsessiveviewer.com or by tweeting us at obsessiveviewer, at obsessivetiny, and at I am Mike White. You can also like us on Facebook and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash theobsessiveviewer where you can take part in discussions and polls between episodes. For more podcast content, check out Anthology, Matt's solo podcast, where he's reviewing The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and exploring other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows. You can find Anthology at anthologypod.com and anywhere podcasts are found. For book lovers, you can check out our sister site at obsessivebooknerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com and subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.